introduction to this, the text. Sometimes, I don't know if you notice, sometimes I'll try to do an introduction to the text. So if you're looking for, you know, kind of an overt way that, oh, this thing fits together, that's generally where I'll put it. But I'll do it here for different reasons by way of review. Just a real quick three-minute survey of what Paul has said in Romans 5, 12 to now. Ready? You want to start your... Start your clock here. Three minutes, right? Adam sins. Death enters into the world. And then all sin because, or excuse me, all sin because all died. Cut off from God. Remember Moses, or the law, enters into this ongoing stream of history where death reigns. The law enters for a reason, to increase Adam's sin, magnifying the results of it. Law points to sin, and then sin points to death. Sin reigns, abounds, along with death under this whole time of the law. And then, Paul says, grace abounds, superabounds. It enters in with Christ. So Paul put the law on the death-sin side of history. Right? So the law doesn't change the great superpower of sin and death. Right? It just highlights it, points it out. And remember, we had this Jewish objector that says, Paul, uh, do you see what you're doing here? By removing the law from the center, you leave the people in sin and death with no way out. Paul says, no, I don't. He said, because we died to sin. Well, how can you say that? Here he goes. At Christ's death and resurrection of people, a body was baptized into his death. A people died with him. A people was raised with him, united with him in death, united with him in resurrection. And that's good news because of what happened to Jesus. Remember, Christ got justified. He got vindicated. He got sanctified. He overcame sin and death. Adopted at the resurrection, he is declared. He is named the king glorified, reigns with the Father. So the people, the body that's united with him, gets what is his because they're united with him. The people get cleansed, forgiven. They get righteousness, rescue, restoration, freedom, and life. That's what being baptized into Christ is all about. And because of all of this, Christ gives you every reason to believe that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Remember Paul said, even better, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And here's the punchline. Because you're dead to sin and alive to God, because you are the body of Christ, you don't present your members to sin or Satan. You present your members to God. Right? He's saying to the church, you are weapons. Weapons for righteousness. Defending Christ's kingdom, fighting against Satan's kingdom. You are part of Christ's kingdom as members of his body because you have, been, you have died to sin, you've been made alive to God.
You're not on the law, sin, death side of history anymore. You're not under law. You're under grace. But this brings up a serious concern. And that's where Paul picks it up in Romans 6, 15 to 19. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? What then are we to say? Excuse me, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Gracious God and most merciful Father, you have granted to us the rich and precious jewel of your word. Assist us with your spirit that the same word may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up and edify us into the perfect dwelling place of your Christ sanctifying and increasing in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. What do you think you're doing? Now, I asked the question last week, who do you think you are? Do you know who you are? This week, we'll just, what, what do you think you're doing? We can ask that question the same way we asked the other one. You can ask it, and I'm sure you have, of your children, or, or your friend, or perhaps a spouse, maybe. What do you think you're doing? Anybody done that? Oh, yes. Corrective. But you can also ask it in this kind of reflective, inquiring way. What do you think you're doing? Either way, in either case, we're calling someone to think about their behavior. We're asking them to perhaps account for their behavior to see whether it's going in the right direction or the wrong direction. Or maybe more specifically or in addition, we're asking somebody to consider to reflect on what the message is that their behavior sends. I mean, we're all good at that. We're all good at it. We're all good at pointing out the message that other people's behavior sends. You don't care about me. Behavior says something. 
whether it is how you think, that's behavior, whether it's what you say, that's behavior, whether it's what you do, like out here, that's behavior, or how you relate to other people, all of it, every bit of it, communicates. It telegraphs something to other people. Perhaps the most important thing that it communicates, what our behavior puts on display, is to what or to whom we have our allegiance. To what or to whom we're loyal. That's what Paul is pointing to here. The significance of what you do. What do you think you're doing? He's going to do this in a couple of directions. He's going to start out answering this, calling us to reflect on this, by just simply pointing out you know, a problem, but then giving a more general idea. There are only two ways to live. That's the first thing. And the second one that we're going to see is that God freed you to live only one of those ways. Only two ways to live. And God freed you to live one of them. We'll touch on, we won't get finished with verse 19. We'll sort of kind of pick that up um, next week too. But we'll start with this first one. There are only two ways to live. And I say that because he gives these series of twos in this this whole thing. But first he says, basically he's asking the question, does under grace equal free to sin? Does under grace equal free to sin? Now this is a different question than the objector raised in verse 1. In verse 1, remember the problem was how do we get out of this sin place? Old Adam. That was the concern. You've given people no way to escape this sin and death by chasing this superabounding grace. This is not about a place. This one is about behavior. Without the law, what stands in the way of sinning? Paul? The law marked, people of, marked the people of God out for himself. The law calls sin out. I mean, it, the law tells us what's unclean. The law, by inference, tells you what's lawless. What do you do with that? You're saying that uncleanness, you're saying that rebellion against what God commands, not an issue now. God's response to that is stronger than, like the the ESV says it. Paul says, God forbid. No. God forbid. That could never be. And then he proceeds to give us his explanation of this. Again, keep in mind, what Paul is doing is he's now reading this covenant relationship with God through the lens of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's 
that's what he's doing. That's what he's been doing this whole time. That's one of the reasons I reviewed what Paul has been saying since chapter 5, verse 12. He is reading the covenant, what it means to belong to God and for God to belong to us through the lens of the finished work of Christ. But here are the series of two. Only two ways to live because there's only two obediences. You're always serving someone. There is never a time when you're not serving someone. In the same way that you're always making a choice, even when you're not making a choice, you're making a choice not to make a choice. You're always serving someone. The one you obey is the one you serve, and the one that you serve is the one that you obey. And there's an important implication to this. It means this, that the body of Christ here, here, serves God. Outside the body of Christ, there's no neutrality. Outside the body of Christ, there's only slavery to Satan and sin. Just two ways. I mean, we could protest that all we want. One writer points out that Paul is really close to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Remember, Matthew 6, 24? Some of you probably could quote it right now. No one can serve two masters. Right? Because... He will either hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money or mammon. Two obediences, that's it. The next two is two services, I guess we could say. The parallel is clear here. He says, slave to Satan or sin, and then your translation will say slave to obedience or to God. That's what, when it says slave to obedience, that's what it means, obedience to God. But those are different things. And the background of Paul's language, I think, will make some sense of this. Consider this. There's why these two servitudes are different. It's not simply because slavery is bad. There's more going on here. Remember, you know, if we're, what we've been arguing is that Paul is using the Exodus here. He's retelling the history of Israel, beginning with Exodus. As Jesus is the lamb, the Pascal lamb, and we've been freed from, right? You get all of that. So, but listen to this. Here is what slavery was. Here, here's the way it was in Exodus. Exodus 1, 12 through 14, it says, but the more they were oppressed that is the Israelites, by the Egyptians, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they, listen, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field, and in all their work they, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made them work as slaves. But God came in through Moses and he delivered them. But listen to what it says about God. God says in 
Exodus chapter 3, 7, he says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the uh, hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out so they can meet bricks for me and I can treat them ruthlessly. No, that's not what he says. Here's what God said. Bring them up out of, excuse me, deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites. And, yeah. and why? Here, listen to this. Ephesians, I mean, Exodus 4, 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and here it is, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And then you know what happens. They make their way out of Egypt, and they go to Mount Sinai, where they get the law. And you know what the law, the way it's depicted, that, that, that whole ceremony at Sinai, the way it's talked about later, it's like a marriage ceremony where, where God is taking Israel as his betrothed. That's not ruthless. That service, that servitude is one that goes with this election and calling this new status, that servitude has with it all of these blessings, rich blessings that are poured out on these people. Paul is alluding to this, this kind of servanthood in the way that he describes himself early. Romans 1. I mean, he's echoing Isaiah 49, taking up that, this is, we're servants. This is who we are as the church, servants. Our calling, election, all of these blessings poured out. I say that to make it clear that what we're seeing here in this passage is services that are not the same. They are not equally legitimate. One is clearly better than the other. What we're seeing here, and it makes a lot of sense, the concern for the law, given what we just said. But what we get here is that Paul sees Jesus' death and resurrection restructuring the story of God's work in history. He takes slaves and makes them servants. Through Christ's work, we've been delivered from sin, set free, and we've been made servants of the living God. That's the two services. Now here's two consequences. Here's the parallel again. Right? Slave to Satan, sin. Where does that lead? Death. Servants to obedience or righteousness, or excuse me, of God, where does that lead? To righteousness. 
death, we know, cut off from God. Anyway, what's the righteousness thing? Well, there are different shades of meaning. But it's something like this. That the servant of God, right, one who is serving God, this leads to the cultivation of the kind of world that God intends. I say it like this, or here's why I'm saying that. Why did Jesus' death, what did Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish? Was the point to make a way for souls to wind up in heaven? No. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the end game here. I mean, we certainly don't, that's not where we end up, these disembodied whiffs. That wasn't the point. What was the point? The point was to change history, to restore what had been lost in Adam, to reconcile the cosmos to himself, to ensure that creation would indeed fulfill its intended purpose. That was the point of the death and resurrection of Christ. As one writer said it, leading to righteousness means that it is in accord with God's covenant purpose. And living in accord with God's covenant purpose looks like this. Looks like this. In fact, you know what it looks like? It looks like, can you pull up the um, uh, call to worship again? You gotta love it when it works out like this. Oh, yes. Oh, I love this. This is what got my attention, right? We worship God who reconciled us to Christ himself. Yes. And then, we are new creations. New creations. The new has come. What's the next thing? Oh, yes, let us worship God as ambassadors. Right? Through us and through our worship, may we announce the good news to all. Well done, sir. That is exactly, exactly what this leading to righteousness is about. As you, the church, present your members to God, you present your members to, as this church presents its members to God. You're doing this. You're putting on display what God has accomplished. That is putting the world back in order. Do you know that's what you do? Do you know that's what you, you telegraph to the world? Look at what God is doing to restore creation. That is you. A people. That is what you do. God's agenda has not changed, even though the law is not central to the equation anymore. God's agenda, his plan, is being fulfilled through Jesus. You see this in Colossians 1, right? Now, this is just to be a way of saying it. And real interesting, you just go back and look at this. Colossians 1, 18 it says, now he's already talked about Jesus already first with creation. Now he says this in Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and here, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. That's connected to his headship to the church. I mean, the existence of the church is the, sends the message that what Paul has already just said in Colossians 1, 15 to 17 about creation, that that's going to happen. We are the proof of it. But here's an even better one. Oh, I love this one. Ephesians 3.10, one verse, listen to this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, excuse me, might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Here's what um, a commentator said, which captures this beautifully. It is in the church's existence as a multicultural and multi-ethnic body, remember, Jews and Gentiles, dwelling in unity, that the church witnesses to the power of the new creation. This activity implies the critical fact that the earthly gatherings, listen to that, the earthly gatherings, right? We can taste, touch, smell. These earthly gatherings of God's people have a vital link with Christ in his high heavenly exaltation to where believers too have been raised and seated. Hence, the church is in essence both earthly and heavenly and is linked as a body to Christ, its head, through the Holy Spirit. Leading to righteousness. Obedience to God. Leading to that. So that lays out in a general way why living under grace does not mean sin runs free. I mean, if you, and if that weren't enough, Paul has more to say. I mean, has that gotten you a bit closer, perhaps, to really grasping why living under grace does not mean wee? Has it? No, no, I'm really asking. Has it? Yeah. Okay, thank you. You know, I'd really love it if you talk back to me. <laughs> Wonderful. I'll get you to do it. Somebody says, no, you won't. I mean, okay. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I deserve that one. Yes, indeed. But he shows more specifically how this gets worked out in your life. Remember, there are only two ways to live. And then the secondly here, God freed you to live only one way. I mean, we get that already, but listen to this. Paul expresses this incredible gratitude, thankfulness, 
for a couple things. Paul, he speaks, not, not, I guess, kind of theoretically, but then he's going, no, 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 but, wait, but thanks be to God. Thank God. Right, this is answering the God for, God forbid, thank God, though, that that is not the case. He's thankful for what he sees in the Romans, what he sees the Romans doing. And he's thankful for what he sees that God has done in the Romans. Paul says, I'm thankful because you guys are living out what it means to be servants of God. You're living out God's purposes, his covenant purposes. You're showing his work in you. How does he say that? Why does he say that? Paul says, because here's what I've heard. You became obedient from the heart. I mean, he sort of lays that out in the first part of chapter 1. You became obedient from the heart. That, incidentally, that's what happens to you because of Christ's work in you. You become obedient from the heart. Christ's body becomes obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart, that's this idea, total allegiance. I mean, you get, you get what that means. With all my heart, this sort of idea. What have you come, become obedient to? That's a good question. Right? I mean, that kind of gets at this concern that's been raised. What, what, what are you obedient to? Paul says, this, he, the term he uses, the standard or form of teaching, the pattern of teaching. The way he states it is a really odd way of stating it, but probably to communicate a couple of things. It is a pattern of teaching that he's got to, that he's got to offer because he's saying, remember the idea, what about Moses? It's different. If it weren't different than the pattern of Jewish teaching in some way, nobody would have a problem with it. So there's that. But then there's this other idea, not just what it is, but what it does. This pattern, the form of teaching, has this idea of forming and shaping you. You become obedient from the heart to this teaching that forms and shapes you. And what is the content of the teaching? I think Paul gives a good idea of this in Ephesians 4. In verse 17, he says this, Here's, here is the way you were, right, listen to this, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That's one way, right? In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That impurity, that's another word that's going to come up in just a second. That's one of the reasons why I thought this text was helpful. But then, what's the other way? Well, here it is. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, and here it is, to put off your old man, which belongs to your former way of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man, new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You put off this old man, remember that you've been freed from Adam, and you put on this new man. This is the teaching that forms and shapes you. This is the teaching that you, the church, the body, and become obedient from the heart too. But then we have to note this as well. He's grateful, he's thankful for this other thing, what God has done in the Romans. Thankful for what God has done in you. You see this in 17 and 18. This sort of then and now, then and now. You were once slaves of sin, but you have been freed from sin. You're no longer in Egypt. Satan is no longer your Lord. Look at the next phrase. How are they described in relation to this form of teaching? And this is a really odd way that he put it. If you... If you don't notice it, you could actually fill in the blank of what you think that it should say. Paul says you become obedient to the form of teaching to which, excuse me, he does not say you become obedient to the form of teaching to which you are committed. He doesn't say that you have been become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you have committed yourself. That's not what he says. Do you commit yourself? Sure, yes. But that's not what Paul is saying. And it's deliberate. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tense, there's a grammatical thing going on here and a meaning thing going on here. It's passive. It's a passive verb. That means something got done to you. Not you did it. It's not active. It's passive. Something got done to you. And the meaning of the word, I think, really helps us see what got done to us. It says, to which... Um, oh, hang on, let me read it again. Um, the standard of te teaching to which you were committed. What is to which you were committed, committed, what does it mean? That word means this, to which you were handed over, to which you were 
delivered over to, delivered up to. That to which you were given up to. You know, I've, I've said this before, but you know where this word is used? And again, this is why I think it's deliberate that Paul does it. This is about, or this word is used to talk about what God did to you in your sin. He gave you up. Three times, 24, 26, 28 of chapter 1. He gave you up. He gave you over. And then it comes up the next time is in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. And there, Christ is delivered up for your trespasses. So the deliberate use in 6 to 18. Christ was delivered up, handed over for the body so that the body can be handed over to him. This form of teaching, this form of teaching is Christ. Something happened to you. You became obedient from the heart because you got handed over to this teaching that forms and shapes you. And so now, as servants of righteousness, you can live as servants of this covenant purpose. And he rounds this out in verse 19, and this is going to all we'll say about 19, but I think it's enough for now. He rounds this out in an interesting way as he's big finish calling us to this obedience. Right? Remember, he says, you presented the members, your members as slaves to uncleanness and lawlessness, and that just led to more lawlessness. Now, present your members as slaves of righteousness. But he, he does this interesting thing, though, that adds a little twist. Really. It's a little thought experiment. In the same way, here's what he's saying. In the same way that you pursued impurity and lawlessness, in the same way that you did that, now pursue allegiance to Christ. Now, I'm sure I mean, some of you might go, well, that's just. But you've got to remember, this actually calls you to reflect. Do you remember how you pursued sin? Now, some of you, can't, do we have any, did any of you, adult, any adults come to Christ later in life? I'm not going to call you out, I promise, but not more than anybody. Anybody, everybody call it later in life. You came to Christ, all right? All right, because so this is for you first, right? You sinners. I'm kidding. It's, it's for everybody. It really is. Do you remember how, 
how you pursued sin with complete and utter precision. Absolute single mind. Do you remember absolute single mindedness? With vigor and intensity. Do you remember this? Chrysostom, Chrysostom said, You didn't split your time between God and sin then, don't split it between them now. Think about that for a minute. You had a commitment, and I mean this, really, really. Think in detail. This will really work well for you if you think in detail about the way that you planned your sin. Think about the way that you ruminated Remember, you just, there's times when you just were like, hmm. the way you fantasized about it. Remember the commitment that you showed to those desires. Or maybe better, to those lusts. I mean, lust is just desire, inordinate, and in the wrong direction. But you get it. Do you remember that? I was reminded of this as I was thinking about it, just kind of in my own life. And all I've got the best thing I got is my experience, okay? So I'm not just, I'm not just, I don't just love to tell, well, I do love to tell stories about myself, but I'm, that's not why I'm doing it now. So I was a teenager, junior high, terrible student, horrible, horrible. And, I, and just a disclaimer, okay? I'm not, I'm not making light of my sin Please, young people, don't try this at home. It won't go well for you. Terrible student. So I got a great idea one day. So this was back when, you know, you got your little report card, and they didn't get numbers. It was like, it was letters. All of my letters tended to not be the top three, okay, of the letters. You know, but in the... And I don't know why I thought this time was really bad, but because, I mean, I mean, really, I just lived under this cloud of, oh, my God, I'm going to go home. And I, so I've got this card, F. So you know what my bright idea was to do? Yes, yes, indeed. Now, here is the irony of all ironies. I was sitting in a history class with my pencil, <laughs> trying to change my F to a B. You know, and I would, I would do it, and then I'd listen to, you know, the next part of the lecture on, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I think it was uh, the 
JFK assassinate, assass I don't know, something. You get distracted. Oh, try it again. No, that's not quite right. Try it again. That's not quite right. Try it again. So, but then I got to this point where I was, I was at a crossroads because, I mean, two things had happened. I was down to the last minute because my mom told me, I better get that report card today. Oh, I forgot to tell you this, because I kept telling my mom that they weren't out yet. <laughs> okay, so now, not only am I late, I had erased a hole into the report card. No, 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 but hey, hey, laser focus. I thought fast on my feet. On my way home, it had rained, but not like recent, it was just like some rain. And so what I decided to do was I got home, I ran my report card under the water, I, and I, oh, I had written a pen thing in there. So I, ran a pen. so I ran my report card under the water. Then I kind of dried it off. And I got, my mom got home. And I said, here it is. Just as she requested. Right? Why is it wet? I dropped it in a puddle on the way home from school. Now, do you want to know the real irony? Not the irony, not that I was changing history in history class. The real irony was that I was leaving that afternoon to go on a church retreat. Yes. And I think my mom just decided, you know what? I'm going to let this go because I'm going to, I think she just was wanting to know, I, I want to I see where this ride's going to end. So she said, Greg, if you're lying, tell me now. No, 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 no. Those puddles, and sometimes, you know, Mrs. Causey, that was my counselor's name, sometimes she writes in with a pen, you know, the grade when they don't come out on time. She did, but not for me. So I went to this, to this trip, to this little weekend away. You know what happened to me that weekend? Didn't deter me, but you know what happened to me that weekend? So, part of this trip was riding a horse. Yep. So I'm riding the horse, or I get on the horse. I'm already a little scared of the horse, but I'm getting on the horse. The horse's name was Sheba. Yep. So, the guy's like, all right, get up there. All right, you go ahead and go. And so, I'm just going, right? And I'm real nervous, but I'm like, ah, okay, this isn't so bad. Right? And then the horse starts to gallop. <laughs> right? And then the horse starts to run. And then the horse is like in a dead sprint. Now, the whole time, this is me. I'm not lying. Ah! Screaming. Screaming. But at some point, I get my wits about me because I see out in the distance, we're about to head out into an open field. I'm sure the horse will stop. And so I get down like, you know, one of the jockeys and I'm riding. 
And I'm thinking, okay, this, we're going to come, we're going to come to a smooth ending here. And as we're riding, I see that we're kind of going, we're about to go through these little fence posts. And as we're getting closer, what I realize is those are not open fence posts. They have barbed wire. I am not making this up at all. Sheba decides she's done. She stops. I fly into the barbed wire. Not even kidding. Cut my shirt, my head. Go home. Did I tell my mom? Nope. Guess what? I forgot that I had to do the whole thing again in three weeks when the next report card came out because it gave them all in succession. Well, my mom found out and called my dad. I thought she wasn't, she did, because they didn't live, we didn't, he didn't live with us. My dad, obviously, just was old school. Let's just say it didn't work out for me. But undeterred, I still looked at my mom with a sense of resentment. How could you tell him? It didn't stop there. I grew up, I worked at a little restaurant, I mean, not a restaurant, a grocery store. And at the grocery store, my cousin and I, we worked there together. And we schemed. He was better at it than I was. But we'd leave early. We'd steal stuff. I mean, like insignificant stuff. Like we had these little, little hostess things, Choco Blisses. Anybody remember those? And we would put them up in the back bathroom, up in the ceiling. We'd go back there, we'd spread out the toilet paper so that we could take a nap if we needed to. <laughs> Leave early. Isn't that precision? And then I went on this church thing, and um, that is when I came to Christ. And I never forget this. The manager that I worked for at the grocery store, who just had had about all she could stand of my lack of enthusiasm about doing the job right. All of a sudden, you know what was interesting? All of a sudden, making sure that the bread was faced the right way, like I was supposed to do it, making sure all of the dairy stuff was, all of that became super important to me all of a sudden. Like, I was like, walk down and make sure that it was like it was supposed to be. Nobody told me, you know what this means now, now that you're a Christian, you got to make sure that bread is faced the right way. Nobody told me that. But what I realized, all of a sudden it became very important to me, is that God mattered. What he thought mattered. What he said mattered. 
even something as insignificant as the bread aisle. But I'll never forget that manager, she said, and I don't know what possessed her to do this. She just said, hey, let me ask you something. What's up? And I'm sure she was struggling to know how to, how to say this, right? I'm like, what do you mean? I mean, she might as well have said it, but I'm sure what she wanted to say was, I don't know, you were a horrible worker before, but now you're pretty good. And I, and I didn't know what to say other than, well, I became a Christian. That's it. That's it. It was one of those really clear, unambiguous times in my life that I look back at and go, wow, okay, I remember even then how committed and single-mindedly I pursued my sin. And I have this, have this moment where that single-mindedness shifted over into what it meant to serve God. Now, I've grown up, you've grown up, you all know that we still struggle. But we've talked about this whole thing, or at least I talked about it, many of you responded to this, and I appreciate it, this pleading with God to change us. And I wonder if we can add this. Ask God to really show you man, how, how do I show this single-minded devotion to my sin? How do I do that, Lord? Would you, would you like sort of open me up and show me how I still focus on this? And would you help me stir in me this energy, this complete commitment to figuring out and thinking through and meditating on and fantasizing about how I can follow you? Would you do that? Use the way that you see yourself going in the direction of sin as a help, a way of helping you to see how this might work out differently in just the everyday warp and woof of life. This commitment, this allegiance. Reflect on what you think you're doing. Asking God that we might glorify him to this world, that we might put on display for the world what it looks like when God puts the world back in order. Let's pray.